Why do people go bald? Why are baboons' bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why do monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the dark? Why do animals not understand you? Why do my receipts fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientists with me, Sue Marchant and Chris Smith. Um, David has asked, why is peripheral vision more acute than direct vision? Well, I think what he means by more acute is probably you're more likely to notice something happening in your peripheral vision. What is peripheral vision? Well, peripheral vision is the outskirts of your vision. So you have your central vision, which is the part of your retina, in other words, that you use when you look at things. If you were staring at someone's face or you're reading a book or watching the television, you would use your central vision. And that's subserved by part of the retina called the macula. And there are lots and lots of photoreceptors. These are the nerve cells that convert light into nerve signals the brain can understand. They're very, very dense in that part of the retina. And then as you get out towards the edges, the acuity of your vision, in other words, how accurately you can perceive detail, that drops away. But how accurately you can perceive movement and sudden flashes of light, for example, that increases enormously as you go towards the edge of the retina. And we know that's the case because people have done studies where they've stimulated various bits of the retina with spots of light and then recorded how the brain responds. And you can measure two things. You can see how sensitive the eye is to those spots of light and you can also record how quickly the brain picks up on something changing and you find that the retina is much faster at telling the brain about things in the periphery. And that's probably because if you're walking along with your attention focused on one thing, you need to know if there's that projectile or missile or something coming in that's about to hit you from Mm. the edge of your vision so that you can take avoiding action. And those nerve cells that send the signals very, very fast, they're a certain kind of what's called retinal ganglion cell. They're of the Y type. They go very fast. They are connected to the brain's motor circuits so that that's why almost subconsciously, if something comes flying towards you, you can blink or duck or take avoiding action. And you just think, why did I do that? How did I know to do that? And it's because you have this very fast motor processing system using these peripheral retinal neurons. The downside is that there aren't that many of them, so you can't tell very much detail with them, but you get an inkling that there's something going on that you need to pay attention to and fast. Mm. Right, okay. Well, that's uh, got our eyesight sorted out. Thank you for your question, David. Um, Gerald has sent an email in. Hi, Sue. I would like to ask Dr. Chris about the quick-drying towels that are stored damp. The newer type are labelled microfiber, one body from a supermarket, which, when dry, remain soft and pack into their small plastic containers easily. An older one is made of a thicker material and, when dry, goes hard but will soften up again when wet. The instructions only state that they can be washed in a mild detergent but by the next day it smells similar to a damp towel left overnight. They both work very well in drying off particularly long hair without the need for a hairdryer. Are these safe or a breeding ground for germs? Well, anything that picks up particles from the environment can be a breeding ground for germs unless it's also got some mechanism of being antibacterial because most of the germs that you'll get in the environment are going to be bacteria, the kind that can grow. So what bacteria need to grow is they need warmth, they need water, they may or may not need oxygen, or they may need the absence of oxygen to grow, depends on what kinds of bacteria they are, but they also need some food. And bacteria are very resourceful and they can eat anything. Our bodies are a thriving hubbub, in fact a bacterial banquet going on all over us. There are more bacteria living on us and in us than there are cells making us. In fact we're passengers in our own body to the extent that there are about 50 times as many bacteria cells living on us and in us than there are cells in us. 
So in that respect, bacteria can thrive almost anywhere, living, living off bits of us, off bits of food that we drop, off bits of food that other animals drop, just off things in the environment. Mm. So if you run a cloth around a kitchen surface, you'll pick up lots of bacteria, you'll also pick up lots of things that they can live on, including a bit of dampness and some food. And if you then leave that somewhere where the bacteria can undisturbed flourish, they, they will increase their numbers. And bacteria grow very, very fast. There's a, a famous poster which is being used to promote careful hand washing and infection control in hospitals and it says things like E. coli, 0 to 60 million in 60 seconds. It's not quite that fast but bacteria do grow very very rapidly. They can double their numbers every 20 minutes or so so they don't take much to get their numbers up. And so if you have a surface which doesn't have antibacterial properties built in, and by that we mean something that can kill bacteria or disable them, then they will increase in their numbers if they've got those conditions. Now, I don't know what the particular type of cloth that's being referred to here is, um, but it doesn't sound to me, if it's getting smelly, it doesn't sound to me like it's very good at suppressing microbes because those smells are usually because various chemicals are being modified by bacteria which in the course of eating them, it's a bit like you having a big dinner and then doing a belch that smells. This is what these bacteria are doing. Yeah. They're breaking down things in the environment and they're turning them into other chemicals that you can smell. Yeah. Uh, microfibre is uh, what Gerald has uh, said. They're labelled microfibre, which could be anything really, couldn't it? Yeah, they're pretty good at... I mean, th these are used industrially to clean surfaces and they're pretty good at picking things up. But then you've got to make sure you clean them afterwards because once they've picked all those things up, they're all sequestered in the microfibre of the cloth but then they'll just sit there so you've got to make sure you clean those things off and sterilize them in order to make them safe mm. right gerald i hope that's answered your question and um, we've got tony on the line for you chris hello oh hi tony hello doctor um what i was going to ask you was this do weather conditions affect things like arthritis pain and you know joint pain and so on and if so why I think, Tony, that people have looked at this and the answer is that they do make a difference but largely because of the temperature. Because what we know about joint disorders is that things like osteoarthritis or more correctly osteoarthrosis, which is the condition that I think 100% of people over the age of 60 have got some of. It's very, very common. This is just where joints wear out, basically, because of wear and tear. Yeah. They tend to present with joints which are stiffer, and harder to get going in the morning, and as the day goes on, things tend to ease up a little bit, but as you do more and more and more, then they get painful again as the day goes on. So, in other words, if you have a nice warm morning, then it tends to be less stiff, but that might encourage people to do more, so they get more stiff towards the end of the day as well. So it swings and roundabouts, but the bottom line is that in cold weather, people with joint trouble tend to find that their joints are stiffer and harder to get going to start with, but the more you do, the stiffer they get as well. As so in the uh, summer... So in the summer, people tend to find that things get easier, but then if they're more active, this makes the joints get more sore, uh, so you yeah. then find that you also get stiffer again. Oh, so I it's know. difficult to say that it's definitely down to one thing or the other, but what we do definitely know for sure is that cold weather aggravates the problem initially, but once you get going, it tends to be a bit better, uh -huh. and the more active you are, the more sore your joints will be. Right. The actual ball joint gets out of shape. Is that well, if you look at a, a joint that's got arthritis, what's actually happening are a number of things. You get what's called sclerosis, and this is where the surface of the joint, either side of the joint, gets calcified. And if you look on an X-ray, it looks very white and has a sort of flare to it. Also, ah. the joint space gets narrower than it should do, and that's indicative that the slippery surface of the bone, which is normally coated with a layer of cartilage, which is very rich in water, and it's very, very crystalline almost, 
almost, this cartilage, which makes it slip almost like anatomical Teflon past itself. And that means that the joint moves with very low resistance. Well, in people who have arthritis, you see loss of that cartilage and the joint space gets narrow. You can also see what are called osteophytes around some joints. And this is where, for some reason, you get the laying down of new bony tissue around the margins of the joint. So if you go to the edge of the joint, you might find that the edges of the bone have these little extensions of bone, these wings of bone sticking off. And why they're important is that they can restrict the movement of the joint so that instead of being able to move through, say, 90 degrees, it can only do 70 degrees. So that's why people get a loss of a range of movement. And one of the other things is that because the bones can get rubbed together, you can get tiny micro-fractures in the end of the bone surface. And then you get a a structure called a geode. And this is a sort of a a medical bastardization of a geological term. A geode is where you have crystals forming inside a bubble, probably, say, a lava bubble or something. Well, in a joint, you get a very tiny geode formed beneath your joint surface. You get this little cavity opens up, and you can get other things forming inside this cavity, crystals of calcium, for example. And this can also be seen on an X-ray. So those are all the features of an an arthritic joint, and they can be there to a greater or a lesser extent, depending upon how severe the disease is. Is there any sort of, um, you know, putting another bit of stuff in between the joints? Cartilage, that's what I'm looking for. Is it possible to get manufactured cartilage, or are they trying to do that? Well, the thing is, it would be so tricky to get the cartilage into the joint in order to replace the surface that's been damaged that it's easier just to replace the whole joint. And so what doctors do is a series of successful joint replacements. Very common is the hip, of course. Knees can also be done. Shoulders can be done. And also some of the hand joints, the knuckle joints, can also be replaced. And these are effectively not quite replicas, but they're based on the same mechanical principles of how the joint works. So if you look at a hip replacement, for example, the way that's constructed is that you have a a shaft which goes down inside the bone, the leg bone, inside the femur, and this comes up to a small metal ball at the top which inserts into a special plastic receptacle which you put into the hip bone. And so the two plug together just like a ball and socket that you would normally have there except that it's a metal and a plastic device and the result of that is, of course, you're not using your own tissue anymore so that means that the pain, which is the main reason why people have... Exactly, problems related yeah. to arthritis, is, is cured. Oh, lovely. I know quite a few people have had it, and it's very successful with hip. Knee's a bit more tricky, I think, isn't it? Well, I think knees are probably one of the most difficult joints to, to, yeah. to actually uh, mimic because we really take our knees for granted and don't appreciate how complex the machinery is that runs your knee. And when you try and design something to replace it, you realise quite how tricky that is and how clever the whole system is but it can be done and people who have knee replacements do get on quite well but obviously any operation comes with a risk because with any operation there's risks of having the operation there's risks of things like infection and then there's just the risk that it might not work very well for you because sometimes not everyone's the same we all look different because we are all different and therefore in some people it might not go brilliantly and they might end up with a less good outcome than other people. But on the whole, most of the time, these things do very, very well, and people can have their lives changed. They can go from being immobile and housebound to having their life back again, and that's why I think it's so important that that we are able to help people to do this. Um, One that's coming on the text, Chris, I just started using weights to get fit. I've noticed little red pinprick marks on my arms. Are they burst blood vessels, and are they dangerous? And uh, the person in question is 46. I think they probably are small burst blood vessels. 
people who do weights end up with, well, if they're not very careful, you can end up with very high venous blood pressure. So when you contract a muscle, the muscle gets shorter and fatter and squeezes lots of blood vessels that run through it. And this means that the blood runs out of the muscle and then back along the main veins towards your heart. And so if you lift very, very heavy things, because you're using lots of your body's muscles all at once, you end up with lots of blood rushing back towards the heart at once, and this can put your venous pressure right up. And sometimes this can mean that some blood doesn't go back into the blood vessel where it should. It pops out into the skin, and you get these small lesions, these tiny um, pinprick-like lesions that this person's describing. It can sometimes be made worse, actually, if you take aspirin as well. You might see that little what's called a petechial rash. Those are called petechiae, those small spots. Um, I would think it probably is high blood pressure caused by the weightlifting not necessarily arterial blood pressure being high but pressure in the veins as they're squeezed hard by the muscles and the thing about veins is that they contain tiny valves because veins are under very low pressure so to help the blood get back towards the heart you have this thing called vis atergo force from behind so when muscles compress they squash the veins, and because veins have these valves in them, it pushes the blood only in one direction through the vein back towards the heart. But that does mean that if you've got a muscle squashing a vein here and a muscle squashing a vein over there, then you can have a bit of vein between the two that can end up quite squashed and quite high pressures. And then anything feeding into that gets a, fills a pressure back into it, so you can get little bits of hemorrhage into the skin. So if that's happening, it might suggest you're overdoing it, if that's a new thing and you're otherwise feeling okay. If it continues and you get more of these things, and it's not related to taking aspirin or some other symptoms, then it might be worth getting that check, just, just in case there's something else going on. But I, I think the coincidence of the weightlifting and the appearance of these things is a sign that you might be doing it a little bit too much. Now, Colin is in Suffolk, and he said um, three years ago he had some swallows make a nest in the eaves of his workshop, and for the following three years he's had swallows nesting there. Is it possible that they're all from the same family of swallows? Well, it could be, because swallows are interesting. They're monogamous, so they'll pair up one male and female swallow pair, and they hang around together for uh, their, their life. So it could be that because birds have an excellent memory, when they do their migration, they'll head for the same places again and again and again. And they remember where the good environments are and where the good places to go to get the best food and the best nesting sites. They remember that. So the chances are it could be. And having found a really good place to nest, they just make for it each year. It's possible. Yeah, it's like having a cottage in the, you know, in the country, really, I suppose, isn't it? I suppose so. I don't think people really appreciate quite how clever birds are. I mean, they can fly thousands of miles. In the case of things like swallows, they go from the southern hemisphere up to the northern hemisphere. Yeah. And they can do that every year, and they can arrive after journeys of thousands of miles faultlessly, which is an amazing feat of navigation for something as small as a small bird, mm. which doesn't have a map. It doesn't have any guidance cues necessarily. It's flying over terrain, which will change seasonally, and it still manages to find its way. And scientists are beginning to think now that birds can see the Earth's magnetic field, and this might be what's guiding them from one place to another. There's a couple of researchers at Oxford University about um, two or three weeks ago. Peter Hoare is the uh, guy who led this bit of research, and they invented a molecule, and they found that this molecule could respond to the Earth's magnetic field. And the Earth's magnetic field is about 50 times weaker than a fridge magnet, so it's not strong. Mm. And their argument was if this molecule can change the way it behaves in a magnetic field, it's possible because it's chemically a bit similar to some of the molecules that you find in the retina. It's possible that animals like birds, which have to do very long-distance navigation, using occasionally 
or very, very few guidance cues. Because if you imagine you're a bird flying over the ocean, there's very little to fixate on to know if you're flying in the right direction. The sun's going to change, it might be cloudy, mm. there may be no moon. How are you going to navigate? Well, the Earth's magnetic field is the one invariable thing that you could focus on. And they're arguing that because there are molecules in a bird's eye which are a bit similar chemically to the molecule they invented to prove this, that may be how birds are doing this, and that, in fact, birds have this way of being able to see the field lines of the Earth's magnetic field and therefore using that as a reference so that they know which direction to fly in. So maybe that's how swallows are doing it, and maybe that's how they're finding Colin's garage. Mm, fascinating stuff. Vic, who's A1 Northbound, says, if you planted a broad bean plant on the moon and watered it, would it grow? If you planted it on the moon? Yeah. Absolutely not, I wouldn't think, for the simple reason that the moon has no atmosphere... Uh, in fact, the moon is just a dried out, desiccated husk of what remained of the Earth's crust after the Earth was involved in a massive cosmic collision about four and a half billion years ago. And so A, the, the moon is desiccated, so your broad bean would need lots of water. But B, there's no atmosphere, and the broad bean gets the energy from the sun, no problem there, but there's no carbon dioxide, and that's where broad beans get their carbon, because if you look at the molecules that make up a plant, it's largely based around the stiff stuff, it's based around sugars, which are linked together to make macromolecules, polymers, including one giant one called cellulose. And so if you don't have any carbon dioxide, you have got no source of carbon, so you can't make all the principal things that the plant needs to grow. And the second thing, and probably the most important thing, is that the moon, because it has no atmosphere, also means there's no filtration mechanism to get rid of the harmful parts of the sun. Now, the sun, of course, doesn't just pump out light we can see. It also pumps out cosmic radiation, and that includes ultraviolet radiation and other ionising rays. And these are very, very damaging to living tissue because they can go past your DNA and blast it to pieces. They can chemically damage DNA or they can rip apart other molecules which then rip apart DNA to make themselves feel better. I think that's probably the easiest way to mm. think about it chemically. And so your broad beam would not stand a hope in hell on the moon, unfortunately. On the other hand, if you were to make some kind of special dome for it to live in where you could give it the things it needed, you could give it warmth, you could, because it's pretty cold on the moon, of course, because it's radiating all the heat from the planet, the moon's surface straight off into the sky. Mm -hmm. So you'd need to make it warm. You'd need to make sure you filtered out the sun so it wasn't too harsh. You gave it some water, and you also gave it the CO2. In other words, recreating Earth on the moon, then it might grow. Fact is that everything that you find on Earth has evolved over the billions of years that life has... Well, when we say billions of years, we think life probably got started about 3.9 billion years ago, possibly, on the Earth. But everything you find on Earth has evolved to survive on Earth, and therefore it's got used to the conditions which we find on Earth, and therefore it would not necessarily do very well if you took it to a different environment. People who want to take plants to Mars, for example, scientists are looking at this question. fact is that a day is a very different length on Mars. Days mm. on Mars are about 40 minutes adrift from a day on, on Earth. And this means that plants would get perpetually jet-lagged because, just like us, plants have a body clock and they get used to a certain cycle of day and night. And if they're not adapted to that, then the plant doesn't grow very well. And so scientists are actually looking at this issue because if scientists want and people want to take plants on space journeys, mm. then they're going to have to adapt the plant to these different conditions. And one of them is getting the plant used to different lengths of day. Once again, absolutely fascinating stuff. Um, David has asked, why is it difficult to stand on one leg when your eyes are closed? Further to this, do blind people have difficulty standing on one leg? 
Well, they can do. Although people who lack a sense generally find that their other senses can become much more acute to compensate, so they learn various strategies to get around the problem.、Um, when you and I are wandering around and we're lucky enough to be able to see everything that's going on, you learn to rely on your vision,、mm. and also you integrate what your eyes are telling you with what your balance organs, your vestibular system, is telling you, and all that is compared with what other Sensors around your body, including pressure sensors in the soles of your feet, stretch receptors in your muscles, stretch receptors in your tendons and your joints, and this is all compared in the brain, and it uses this information coming in to work out what you're doing at any given moment in time. Now, if you suddenly remove one sense from the equation. Eyes suddenly, your body has to work out what it's doing and what direction it's travelling and how it's moving. But it's minus that sensory information that would have usually been used to work out where you are in space. If you then stand on one leg, you're now removing from the equation not just the visual input,、mm. but you're also re- removing all of the other tactile information: the pressure sensors in that foot, the stretch receptors in that muscle, the stretch receptors in the tendons and the joints. And now, it's the brain is having to rely on just one channel of information from one. Leg, in order to work out what's going on, it's got nothing to compare it with. It can't use vision to see if it's getting the signals right, and it therefore doesn't know the correct way to compensate for if it senses a tipping or something. And by the time it learns how to compensate, you've already half fallen over.、Mm. But you could practice. And what happens with people who are denied or deprived of a certain sense? Then they learn to compensate by practicing. And I once spoke to a man who'd had both of his legs amputated. He actually was、um, in the military and、mm. had had a nasty military accident, and he had、uh, false legs, had prostheses below the knee.、Mm. And I said to him, "Do you have problems walking around in the dark? Because in the dark,、uh, of course, you can't see where your feet are going. And if you're, if you've got no muscle sense, joint sense, and skin sense coming up from the bit of your legs that you no longer have." How do you know where they are? And he said, "Well, initially, yes, I did have a problem because I used to have to watch my feet all the time. But I've now learned to compensate, and in other words, I've, I've attuned myself to the signals that are there, and I've strengthened the attention I pay to those signals so that I have no problems. So I don't even think about it now. So I think that basically is it in a nutshell.、Mm. It's, it's all down to practice. Yeah, Dr. Chris, do batteries work the same in space as on Earth? Thankfully, yes, because otherwise we would have real trouble when it came to sending missions to other planets. We've just been talking about the Phoenix lander and the Naked Scientist recently.、Mm. This is NASA's latest exploration of Mars and our attempt to understand what Mars was like in the past history. And this probe has been travelling through about 400 million miles of space to get to Mars, and it's got batteries on board which keep all the computers running and the software. And those batteries get charged up by solar panels. But of course, it's not sunny all the time on distant planets, so you need to be able to charge your batteries up, and when the sun's shining, and then when there's no sun, run off your batteries. And it's the same for satellites. It's the same for the International Space Station. It's the same for space shuttles and spaceships. The battery is run by nothing more than a chemical reaction, and it's just a way of storing energy. So, if you have a solar panel, for instance, then photons of energy from the sun hit the solar panel.、Uh, the solar panel is made of a material which has what's called、uh, vacancies or holes, and something else which donates electrons. And the electrons want to flow into those holes, and you just make them go around a circuit and do some work for you before they go into those holes. And that's how a solar panel works. And you store energy from that circuit in a battery. So in the battery, you've got two chemicals that want to react with each other, and they can either react and make product X, or product X can break apart and make two other products. And that reaction is reversible in a rechargeable battery. And so you 
push the reaction in one direction by putting energy into the battery and then when you want to get your energy back out you reverse the chemical reaction and the energy comes back out again. So chemistry works the same wherever you are in the universe because we think that the universe is made of just about the same number of building blocks wherever you are. These are the elements and so the same chemistry should work here on the moon and in, even in different solar systems and different galaxies. So batteries thankfully yes should work the same in space. There are some physical constraints though which is that some batteries have a liquid in them such as a car battery and this relies on being the right way up so the liquid can't come out and it keeps the plates, the lead plates immersed. If you were to take that into space then it's weightless, it would experience weightlessness, so there's a problem potentially with the fluid not completely covering the plates. Um, so that's why the batteries that they use tend to be sealed cell-type batteries, the kind of thing you'd put in a laptop, a lithium-ion mm. battery, for example, where you don't have a, a physical fluid flowing around inside the battery. But to all other intents and purposes, the chemistry is the same, so they ought to work. Mm. All right, Trucker Gaz is a lorry driver, and um, his mate can go slightly faster than him last night, and he hadn't adjusted his limiter, but he wonders, could it be the fact that having new tyres help a vehicle go ever so slightly faster? I think it probably could. There are a number of things that will affect the speed of a vehicle. What governs that? Well, apart from having a limiter on your engine, you need an engine to push a car or a lorry or a van or a train along because all the time that it's moving, it's losing some of its energy, its kinetic energy, which is the energy of movement, to the environment. It's giving energy as sound, it's giving energy to the atoms and molecules in the air as, as increased kinetic energy of those molecules, in other words, heat, so that's air resistance. So it's losing energy all the time, and the engine has to replace that energy to keep it moving at a constant speed. Well, if you imagine that the engine's putting in X amount of push, and you're losing a certain amount to the environment, if you minimise losses to the environment, then you can get more speed for the same amount of push. So if you've got new tyres and they're properly pumped up, then you will go at a much better speed because you'll be burning less fuel to make your car go along than if you're going along with flat tyres. Um, you can probably save, I think, something like 13 or 14% on your fuel bills if you pump your tyres up correctly. People driving around with flat tyres waste enormous amounts of fuel because the, the tyres are flexing more than they should as they're turning. And instead of going around as a nice even circle, you're going around on this thing which has got a flat bottom and a curved top, and that's your wheel. So you're putting a lot of energy into bending the rubber in and out rather than the wheel going around smoothly. So, yes, I think probably properly inflated tyres, which a new tyre, if it's been fitted professionally, should be, could make a difference. A lady here says, I have osteoarthritis and have Hebedin's nodules in my fingers. Um, mm. A new one has appeared recently. It's so painful and pointed. Is there any treatment for them? I'm asthmatic and so I can't take anti-inflammatory drugs, but I do take painkillers. OK, let's talk about Hebedin's nodes. This are named after Hebedin, not surprisingly. And if you look at your fingers and you've got a bit of arthritis, uh, these are the lumps that appear on the sides of the joints in your fingers. So if you look at a finger, mm -hmm. towards the end of your finger where your fingernail is, come down one joint, and where the end of your finger wiggles up and down, some people get lumpy bumps there. Yeah. Those are Hebedin's nodes, and they're actually a manifestation. That's the, the external manifestation of uh, these things called osteophytes. So when you have joint inflammation, the joint ten tries to repair itself and deposits new bone around the margins of the joint. These are these little wings of bone, which we call osteophytes. And when they prod through the skin like that, they look like these lumps, which we call Hebedin's nodes. Um, 
not really worth doing anything about because the chances are, as we've already mentioned, lots of the risks of surgeries and operations. If you do something to the joint, there's a, a real risk that you'll make things a lot worse, not better, so that the ends really don't justify the means. So it's probably not worth doing anything about them. And I do feel for that person who has asthma because this can be a problem with taking certain types of medication, including these anti-inflammatories. If you're what's called a brittle asthmatic, mm. whose symptoms flare up when you take aspirin-like drugs, it can mean that, that things like arthritis can be a real pain, quite literally. Mm. And lastly, Timothy from London has um, asked me to ask you, he's 20 years old, but he has a skin disease. Um, it's slowly turning his brown skin white. He's thinking about going into um, a depigmentation therapy. What does this involve? OK, I think probably what Timothy is describing is a condition called vitiligo. Mm. And vitiligo is an autoimmune condition. This is where the immune system attacks the body's own tissues inappropriately. And vitiligo involves the body making antibodies against uh, an enzyme called tyrosine hydroxylase. And tyrosine hydroxylase takes the amino acid tyrosine and it turns it into another chemical which it needs to make melanin because melanin is made by making a, a series of chemicals, chemically modifying a series of chemicals in which initially you make dopamine, the stuff that the brain uses, and then you, from dopamine, generate melanin. And melanin is a big molecule that can soak up UV light, and it's made in the skin and added to the surface of skin cells as they grow, and this enables your skin to fend off ultraviolet, it's, and that's, that's the stuff you make when you get a suntan. Mm -hmm. People who come from places like Africa and Asia tend to have their cells making more melanin normally, and it gets, that means their skin has a darker, darker hue to it. If you have this autoimmune disease and the immune system comes in, for reasons about which we're not really clear, it attacks in patches, and so you'll get a patch of skin where you get no ability to make pigment. And this means that you'll have normal coloured skin, and then in the middle of that you'll have a patch of white mm. skin, very white skin. And the thing is it can't make any pigment, and that means it's very prone to sunburn, but it also looks unsightly, and people can use things like makeup to cover it up. But it is, especially in young people, very, very worrying because it stands out because it's so different in colour yeah, to the sure. other parts of your body. Even on a white person mm. who has a patch of it, it's very, very obvious. Um, it doesn't tend to go away. Once you've had the patch um, emerge, it tends to stay there. Um, I don't know whether depigmentation of other bits of the skin is a good idea or not here, and I think probably a dermatologist is going to be the best person to talk to because, of course, that's got risks associated with it, um, and it's probably better, I would think, to try and cover it up unless it's very, very extensive. But, but obviously, without seeing it, I couldn't give any better advice. But a dermatologist um, who could you could you could be referred to from a GP mm -hmm. probably could give um, some some better advice. That's it for this week. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget, you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.